Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio for friday may 10th 2013 this week episode 284 comes to you from studio d up in central city pennsylvania here with me in the studio is our engineer roxy v val bender hello And joining us will be our technical deck director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Dieter is going to be calling in. Um, Cliff is on the road today, so Cliff will not be joining us today, but we'll, uh, we'll march on without him. Anyway, today we're going to do something a little different. We're going to go to a flashback show, but we're going to have a little commentary at the same time. So we're going back to a show we did, uh, show 131, about three years back now, maybe four with uh, Bill Rose. Bill Rose is a research architect at the University of Illinois. Great show we had with Bill, so let's move on. And the reason I guess I want to make sure people understand we're doing this is um, we've had people lately, a lot of people who are new to the show, and they're saying, wow, 283, 284, 300 shows. I can't listen to all these shows. Can you help me uh, get caught up? So what we're trying to do is go back through the archives and pick out what we think are some of the best shows and replaying them from time to time. We may do this, say, once a month or every other month. But anyway, before we get started, let's thank our current marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Today's guest is Mr. William B. Rose. Bill Rose is a research architect at the University of Illinois at the Building Research Council School of Architecture at the Urbana-Champaign uh, campus. His major field of university research involves water and its effect on buildings. He is the author of Water in Buildings, an Architect's Guide to Moisture and Mold, published in 2005 by Wiley & Sons. The book recently won the Association for Preservation Technology Lee Nelson Award. His current university research projects include sky radiation effects with solar reflective roof surfaces and combustion product concentration in houses with unvented combustion appliances. He is the handbook chair of the ASHRAE TC 4.4, responsible for four ASHRAE handbook chapters on building envelope performance, and he is a founding member of the ASHRAE Standards Committee 160P, Design Criteria for Moisture Control in Buildings. Through William B. Rosen Associates, he consults to museums and historic properties on moisture issues and is presently involved in the United Nations building, Sagamore Hill, the home of Teddy Roosevelt, and the Guggenheim Museum in New York. We've got some introductory music for Bill. Good afternoon, Bill. This is Joe Hughes. How are you? Hello, Joe. Fine. Good. Good to have you with us on IAQ Radio. Thank you. Hey, I didn't recognize the music. Is that the trivial trivia question for me? I no, got it first. <laughs> no, no sure but, a, but actually it's called The Architect. 
and um, it's by the states, so you can get it on uh, on iTunes. There you go. We okay. We Good. try to come up with something that relates to uh, the subject, and uh, you're the our research <laughs> architect here, Bill. What what yeah. exactly is a uh, research architect, and how did you get involved in this field? A uh, research architect is an oxymoron. <laughs> How would you like to have a job title an oxymoron? Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, uh, well, I, I um, let's see, my European friends who, colleagues who got to where we are in building science, they usually came through rigorous engineering training and they're just floored by how informal the training is for the building scientists from the united states many of whom came through carpentry like me um uh but a let's see an architect generally does design uh they're trained to do design and design is an act of will basically design says this goes here like this and you never want to ask a scientist to do design. The scientist will say, well, um, we could put this here, or we could put it over here, or we could do it this way, or we could do one like this and one like this, and then we'll see which is. Design is a really important thing, and, um, and architects do it, um, but combining research and architecture, it, it, is, it is kind of a funny fit. It is a little different, and I, I want to get to um, your definition of building science in a moment, but I, I wanted to give our listeners a, a quick quote from your book because it ties into what you just said. Um, in the book, you say, when water comes in the buildings, it may be argued it comes in through the crack between the design and the construction professions. Can you tell us a little more about what you mean by that? Uh, um uh, let's see. Everybody's got turf. Uh, everybody knows their their thing pretty well. Um, we sort of expect architects. We expect somebody to uh, to put all the pieces together and to know what occurs at interfaces. But we we're not good at that. Uh, nobody architects have turf too. Um, uh, it's it's really the the cracks between things that that seem to make all the difference uh, in a roof. Uh, the field or the main part of the roof really rarely leaks. It's the it's the seams or the valleys or the anomalous conditions. Um, I guess that's what I meant there. Not sure. I hadn't thought about that. Okay, that's well. I I know in the earlier part you had talked about how this is one of the few. I guess. Um, uh, endeavors in life where you know one person designs it and the other uh, another group of people construct it and there doesn't seem to be as much um, communication between those groups as as we had hoped right I use the dental analogy yeah. a lot uh, and that is suppose we deliver dental services the way we deliver building services then you'd have a a dental designer who would look at the patient's mouth and say something like, ooh, I see incision here, and then draw up uh, a set of uh, drawings and specifications for what's to be done and hand them over to the, to the patient and say, go find the cheapest uh, dental contractor you can, uh, <laughs> and it's likely to be the one with the dullest drill bits and that sort of thing. It's kind of crazy that we split it up uh, so strictly the way we do. I know there are a lot of exceptions, design, build, and uh, I think the lines tend are, are tending to blur. But but boy, we still have a big problem between the, uh, the, the that's enforced in insurance and in contracts and everything else that separates the design process from the construction process. So where does what is building science and and where does this fit into the the bigger picture? <laughs> It's a, it is an odd term, and rarely, we don't, well, the, the public doesn't talk about it. Building scientists talk about it among one another, but people outside of building science rarely ask that question. Uh, we know what science is, and we know what buildings are, and basically building science is just science applied to, to buildings. Um, but to take that just a little bit further, 
we know sciences can be sort of inductive or deductive, like biology begins as an inductive science where you look around and you see that plants don't move, but animals do. And um, by looking at the conditions that are outside in the real world, begin to draw organization charts and, and begin to make sense and order of uh, what would otherwise be a pretty chaotic situation. A deductive science sort of starts from principles and draws conclusions. Uh, input leads directly to output. And uh, building science is sort of both. The people who model say, here are the physical principles, and so buildings ought to do this. But the inductive scientists will say, let's look around and see what buildings are actually doing and what people are doing in buildings. Let's look at how healthy people seem to be in different environments. Uh, uh, to me, that's one of the important distinctions that science teaches, uh, induction versus deduction in the approach to building. Bill, did you have some sort of aha moment which got you thinking about the effect of water on buildings? Let's see. I was... Uh, I started in this position after a couple of years practicing architecture. Started in this position in the mid 1980s, and as the as the young kid in this research establishment, uh, I was assigned, or we were all assigned, positions responding to the public, uh, whether homeowners or building owners or contractors or architects, uh, responding to the public. Uh, with their questions about buildings. And as the newcomer, they assigned me the questions about moisture, just because nobody else really wanted to deal with them. They were, they were some of the most troublesome. So I read the books and figured I, I kind of knew everything and found that I was having the same discussion with different people that kind of went back and forth and up and down and... Uh, um, it was it was very unsatisfying, and so I figured I'm going to get to the bottom of this. Um, uh, I, you've had uh, Joe Stibrick on this right. show before, and I have to say that there was really a moment when uh, I kind of went head-to-head in the mid-1980s uh, with Joe uh, at a conference, and I'd been sort of conventional in my approach, and he wasn't, and... Uh, I have to give him credit. He uh, he kind of shook me up 25 years ago or so. Joe, uh, unconventional? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but sort of with that prompting, I got back to my desk and said, maybe we have to rethink some of the, some of the, the precepts that, that I had actually inherited through my architecture education and uh, from the establishment here, which, which sort of played a big hand in, in generating the rules for vapor barriers and attic ventilation and all that sort of thing. Well, when we're talking about um, moisture, let's, let's get some, I guess, a definition first. What is moisture diffusion? Um, pretty girl walks into a room, she's got perfume, uh, you smell it. Um, the 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 gas, uh, the molecules, the aerosols uh, move uh, uh, move through space. Um, so just the 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 tendency to mix things uh, uh, within within a medium. Uh, Geez, I'm not giving you a really good answer. What no, they you used didn't. to say is, uh, no, <laughs> is, is <that> they <laughs> use the they use the analogy of the drunk in the lamppost. Um, a drunk leaves his lamppost and just kind of wanders aimlessly, moving one way and another. This is kinetic behavior, and it represents the behavior of molecules from a starting point to uh, to another point. Um, in other words, there's there's no direction to it, but but it's not likely that in, in this process the drunk is going to wind up exactly back at the lamppost. On the other hand, if uh, another means by which a molecule or a drunk could move, they, they pick them up in a truck and take them to the next town. They don't, you know, it's, that's dynamic movement. So 
diffusion is the the um, very powerful force that's a result of the kinetic behavior of molecules, typically in a, in a, in a fluid, a gas or a liquid. Uh, but it's it's absent anything dynamic, anything that's directional, anything you'd put an arrow on that says this is headed in this direction. So diffusion it just goes out. Um, other processes, dynamic processes, go from A to B. Are we more concerned with the, the more dynamic processes when you're dealing with water in buildings, or is diffusion, uh, I guess it would be one of the more difficult to figure out, but um, maybe you can comment on that. Okay. Uh, refrigeration uh, was under development in the early part of the 20th century, and people recognized early on that if uh, if you build a walk-in cooler and it's chilled uh, regularly on the inside and it's warm and more humid on the other side, that the exterior of this enclosure needs to protect against uh, moisture diffusion toward the inside or else the inside gets all corroded or soggy or depending on what the interior face is made from. Uh, so, uh, in the, in 1933 or thereabouts, uh, it was noted that the that the um, that buildings that re, that were insulated had peeling paint, and a big uproar ensued. The Forest Products Laboratory was called in to say, "How come these insulated buildings are uh, are, are suffering from?" from a, an epidemic of paint peeling, and they called a paint chemist, and the paint chemist said, well, it's because of the gutters. <laughs> and he was right. That's, that's where most of it was coming from. Um, but they they chose to uh, to study this, and uh, the, the researcher Teasdale, all this, this story is told in the book, but the, the researcher Teasdale said, well, basically, anytime porous and hygroscopic materials get cold, they get wet, and insulation in cold climates like Madison, Wisconsin, where it was, uh, if it gets cold, it gets wet. Insulation turns, uh, during cold weather, turns interior materials warm, thereby dry, and exterior materials cold, thereby wet. That's process number one. Process number two was you have high vapor pressure indoors and lower vapor pressure outdoors, and the tendency is to migrate outdoors. So he said there are two reasons why insulated buildings tend to get wet on the outside. One of them is associated with vapor pressure. The other is just the fact that insulation does what it's supposed to do and turns exterior materials cold. Um, and if you follow through on that second one, then you realize there's an, there's an inherent incompatibility between painted exteriors and insulation. If you follow through on the first and you say, well, maybe a vapor barrier would help. And that what happened was that the first part tended to be ignored and forgotten because it, it wasn't any help to these two industries, the paint industry and the insulation industry that were trying to get on their feet. Um, so there was a ten. So, so everybody focused on the vapor barrier as the mechanism. It's kind of unfortunate that we lost sight of the other mechanism, which, in many cases, is more important. Uh, but that's that's how diffusion came in. Diffusion was was the the wetting process toward exterior materials that can be handled by vapor barriers. It's not the only wetting process, but it's the one that vapor barriers can manage. Well, while we're talking about uh, different types of, of barriers, we've had um, Andy Osk on the show, and, and he talked about um, the three barriers he, he mentioned were the air barrier, the vapor barrier, and the thermal barrier. And sure. um, which would be the most important in your work and why? Um, okay, I'll start at the beginning. I think roofs are most important. Okay. <laughs> you okay. want to you want to have a building, put a roof on it. Put a good rain, roof on it. Right. Okay, there you go. Now we got a real building. Um, uh, my it, to answer questions like this, I usually go back to um, a, a, 
to older buildings. I work primarily in existing buildings and, and also historic buildings, and, and they worked really well. So I, I hate to give any answer to a question that makes existing buildings look worse than they really are. They're, they're really nice things. Um, and we didn't have vapor barriers until essentially 1952. Um, so uh, I sure don't apply very much importance at all to vapor barriers. Okay. I'm reviewing right now the minutes of the little conference or workshop that they had at the time that they were rolling out the first, uh, the first code requirements for vapor barriers. And what's amazing is that the, all of the examples of wet buildings that needed to be protected, all of the examples that they pulled out were houses on crawl spaces. And a reasonable person would have said, hey, how about if we do something about the crawl space and let's leave this attic ventilation and vapor barrier business till later? Because uh, every building that they could find was dry, whether it had a vapor barrier or, you know, and that didn't matter. The wetness was solely a function of whether it was on a crawl space, and crawl spaces were somewhat unfamiliar. They were largely post-war, um, but they were really wet. And so... Rather than do the crawl space, uh, as I think it should have been done, they, they adopted these rules. I kind of wish they hadn't. Now, can you give us a, an example? As a matter of fact, maybe maybe I can tie two things together here. One is that um, we got a text in that, you know, there's a fourth, a weather barrier, okay? And, and I think some people combine the air and the weather barrier, and, and they consider that to be a, a, the most important, and I think you just verified that. Now, the other thing that I wanted to ask about is when you are dealing with old buildings or even maybe some newer buildings that have were built originally without insulation, but then somebody attempts to insulate them, what types of problems does that cause? And, and can you give us an example of a, a specific <laughs> building? Um, in your introduction, you mentioned the group APT, or the Association for Preservation Technology. People can find that on the web. It's a great organization. And I, they have a bulletin, and I published an article titled, Should the Walls of Historic Buildings Be Insulated? And if I had said yes or no, it would have been a pretty short article. <laughs> it didn't say yes or no. Um, what I did say was that the burden for energy conservation falls on everybody. It doesn't fall less on people who are concerned with historic buildings than, than anybody else. Um, but if we were to do an audit of, of a historic building or of any building, uh, you'd come out with a prioritized list of energy conserving measures and typically adding wall insulation falls down in the somewhere at the low end of the top 10. You insulate the roof, you uh, add storm windows, you find the big holes and stop them up, uh, you get more energy efficient equipment, you abandon the use of air conditioning. You know, there are a whole lot of other things that you might do before adding insulation. Incidentally, I've never gotten around to insulating my 1920s house. One of these days I will. Um, uh, but that said, um, uh, the it, how to do insulation is is uh, is a, a tricky thing. Uh, everybody who is involved in insulation kind of knows that. Um, so uh, I hate to make rules to say, yeah, we really everybody ought to do that. Um, I, I I think everybody ought to participate in a a giant big campaign to save energy and wall insulation. Well, wall insulation turns out to be um, either the first or the second biggest contributor to energy savings in the weatherization program. So, yeah, go it, do it. Um, uh, I promise I'll get around to it on my house, but uh, um, um, it's it, but just saying do it, does, it tends to hide some of the difficulties that there are in retrofitting insulation. You always want to do it at the outside to the extent possible. Uh, okay. Okay. Cliff? Well, I was thinking maybe we can move on to some construction uh, 
questions and you know we have a lot of questions really on addicts and and you know <laughs> uh, you know first of all um, you know do you th- is it your opinion that addicts uh, should be ventilated <laughs> I was thinking and getting ready for this <laughs> that, that um, addict ventilation is the Britney Spears of building science <laughs> okay. In other words, I mean, you can't have an issue of People magazine that doesn't talk about Brittany, whether she's back on stage or out of rehab or putting on weight or something like that. And and people, you, you just you got to talk about Britney Spears kind of, and you got to talk about attic ventilation. If I take, if I approach this inductively, that is, I look around uh, and say, how are our roofs doing? Forget that. that I know that from a deductive point of view pretty well you look around and just say uh okay we're good you know uh are we vented are we not well every vented attic i've ever seen is not vented somewhere uh and every unvented attic i've seen is kind of vented somewhere and (laughs) nobody measures whether they're we don't know whether things are vented or not vented and we don't know what problems there are except for the ones that we create under sort of petri dish laboratory conditions uh i'm exaggerating the case a little bit uh i i did a survey of well i I used to be a home inspector or a a researcher disguised as a home inspector and i did home inspections my colleague and i did 670 of them and we found 43 cases of severely rotted roof sheathing we also found 44 buildings that were on wet or flooded crawl spaces, and damned if they weren't the same building. <laughs> uh, um, uh, this, this, uh, um, if we just step back and say, how are we doing on roofs? Uh, the answer is we're not doing too bad. Roofs tend to be hot, and hot means dry, and uh, one of the the strongest reasons I've ever run across for attic ventilation is to forgive occasional roof leaks, which do occur as as roofs age. I don't know what to do about that because if we want to say what's what's a design leakage criterion for a roof, we have to say well zero. <laughs> you got a you got a roof leak, you patch the uh, you fix it, you repair it, you don't say that it's it's under some threshold uh, leakage criteria if you fix it. Um, but still, attic ventilation helps in some ways, um, but if it's absent uh, intentionally or not, uh, it, uh, the consequences don't jump out at you. Uh, then there's also the whole set of roofs that have no cavity at all. And these are much more predictable and tend to be pretty good. That is, the commercial roof using like a foam insulation under a membrane, whether it remains flat or is tilted up at an angle, they tend to be they tend to be quite good, quite uh, predictable. Uh, in our in the lab where I studied this, that assembly pr- led to the hottest sheathing of all the other assemblies that included cavities, whether they were cathedral ceiling or flat ceiling. Uh, and by virtue of being hot, that sheathing was also dry. Uh, I could go on forever, but but you get the idea. I've been asked, what do I think about this stuff? Uh, I've had one of your, I'm sure, well, an IAQ uh, uh, consultant describe uh, spend like 10 minutes with a client telling me this and this and this about air leakage and ductwork and all this, this, this. And he said, How, you know, what do you think we ought to do? And my answer to him, and I was being paid for this, was whatever. <laughs> <laughs> that was the, the correct scientific answer because we're way beyond what determinism can tell us about a given roof system. We're, in, we're totally into the probabilistic realm. Well, let me let me. We have to go to halftime in just a moment, but I, I get this question. I you know we hear people yep. say that you should move, uh, especially in these hot, humid climates. They're they're putting foam up against the the uh, bottom side of the roof deck, 
mm-hmm. and I get people that say, well, but that will that will void the shingle warranty or, or that mm-hmm. will cause this. Is that, can you comment on that? Well, uh, as a scientist, I don't study warranties. Okay. So that puts me in a very small group of people. Um, but all of my experiences that uh, that accelerated shingle uh, deterioration is associated with the makeup of the shingle and not with not even with color to say nothing of vent presence or absence of venting uh, I can look around and and see curled shingles and exactly one bundle will be curled and the others will will be okay uh, I could I, if you visit my lab you'll see that that one recipe of shingles is all bad and one recipe is all good and uh, and this is independent of whether they've been for 20 years now on a, on a vented or an unvented or whatever you know it all comes down to the, the, the makeup of the shingles perfect that's exactly what I needed to hear now I can tell them I've, I've talked to somebody and that I don't <laughs> believe it affects the durability of the shingle now that may or not May or may not include the warranty. Yeah, and that, that's ninety-eight percent true. What I'm telling you. Okay. I mean, there's also a two percent that says, "Yeah, you, you are affecting the temperature, and temperature does affect the service life." But ninety-eight percent of it is is uh, makeup recipe for the shingle. Perfect, Bill. We've got to go to halftime. We'll bring you right back. Okay. Thank you. Thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanclenfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, let's bring Dr. Dieter in real quick. Hello, Dieter. Oh, there he is. <coughs> Dieter, any quick questions or comments for Bill? Uh, well, yeah, a couple of comments. I don't know who Britney Spears is. <laughs> I live happily ever thereafter. Um, and that is good for me, I guess. Um, I still, you know, I'm, a, I'm an engineer. I'm a mechanical engineer. And I know something about a psychrometric chart. And I know what dew points are and uh, wet bulbs and dry bulbs and, 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 and uh, uh, all of that stuff. And I still think, I mean, I have a roof over my house, which is not leaking. And I also am aware of the fact that roof shingles probably deteriorate, not due to the fact that there is water on it, but that ultraviolet uh, uh, light uh, is deteriorating them. But if my attic, if my attic is 120 or 130 degrees, and I do have a fan that uh, sucks out some air, now I'm again, I'm aware of the fact 
So my roof is 120 degrees, let's say it, and it's 100 degrees outside and 100 degrees relative humidity. Now, I'm well aware of the fact that I'm drawing in outside air, which is cooler than what I have, and I'm also drawing in some moisture. Now, in my house, and I have, my house came with one of those roof vents, I have never seen any mold growth or moisture, and it makes sense to me that if I can keep the temperature lower up there, it may well be uh, good for me as far as my air conditioning bill is concerned. Uh, on the other hand, I do not know the thermodynamics of yeah. It, what what is the gain? What is the difference if I keep the roof at 100 degrees or 120 degrees? All right. Uh, does does that really make a difference? I don't know. Yeah, you hear this and that and the other, and of course I discussed this problem, not problem, this subject, with uh, Joe Stebrook, Stebrook, whatever you want to call him. <laughs> I call him Stebrook, that's the right way to pronounce it. And uh, so that, that is an interesting uh, um, uh, um, subject. Well, let's oh, ask. And I don't know whether I ever got a satisfying answer of, why it is good or why it is bad, and you shouldn't do it or you should do it. Well, let's let Bill comment on that, and then we'll bring you back for the roundup, Dieter. How's that sound? Sure. All right. Sure. Thank you. Bill? Okay. Uh, Dr. Dieter is correct that venting, whether by passive or active means, tends to uh, lower the summer afternoon uh, buildup of heat in an attic, and, and uh, by several degrees. It, uh, of course, it's it's different at 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. and 4 p.m. and the maximum might be as much as 20, 30 degrees Fahrenheit. As we use more and more insulation, that difference in delta T across the insulation makes less and less difference. In our laboratory, we tried to study this. Uh, using R30 insulation in both a vented and an unvented attic and to try to determine, uh, to see which air conditioner ran longest. And we couldn't get a good answer uh, for, for many reasons. But the main reason is it's, it's too slow. And, and uh, my advice to anybody is don't try to use runtime of two different air conditioners as a control in an experiment because they'll get screwed up by, uh, by uh, limit settings, amount of humidity in the two, uh, uh, refrigerant charge. We weren't able to detect a difference. And I don't know of anyone who has run an experiment where this def where this difference in air conditioning use has been demonstrated uh but 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 it does cool the attic no two ways about that all right well let's uh bill if you don't mind we'd i think i'd like to go to some of your more famous let's let's bring dr wow in here well i, I Dieter, do we still have you on the line uh, am i alive now you're live now Dieter. you know i've I wanted to cut in a little earlier, but I wasn't, you know, I, I kept listening and going, wow, this was really a fascinating interview, and he's just filled with great information, so I didn't want to cut in too soon, and then we knew you were going to ask a question right after halftime, and I wanted to see if you had anything you wanted to add. Well, I, I uh, haven't changed my mind on uh, either uh, attic ventilation or crawl space ventilation. But it has to be done intelligently. And uh, with today's technology, where you can literally get sensors for a buck and a half, virtually nothing, I think there are times, depending on the outside and inside temperature and the outside and inside relative humidity, both of the above can easily be measured. I have in my house, and I'm turning around right now, one, two, three digital um, temperature and uh, moisture uh, uh, meters outside and inside, and I can see what it is. So I think there are moments 
when not moments, days and maybe months, when you can and should ventilate uh, your attic and or your crawl space. Now, if I have a crawl space and I have seen houses like that down south in, in uh, Mississippi, state of Mississippi, uh, it was outside like 120 degrees and 100% relative humidity. I may be exaggerating a little bit, but um, uh, and of course the house, the people in the house, they're living there, they have the air conditioning on. Now, is it now a good time to run that outside air at 120, whatever it is, uh, degrees or thereabouts, uh, and 100% relative humidity or 98% or 95% under the crawl space? No. If you don't have any insulation between the floor of the above where the people are and you are uh, in the crawl space, of course, you will have condensation. There's no doubt about it. It would be a dumb and stupid thing to do to push in that uh, moisture-laden hot air into a space where it can condense. That's stupid. Wow. So the same goes with uh, the attic. And uh, I, I'm still looking at it. And um, uh, uh, I may do something just for the heck of it uh, to do... <clears throat> And, and add it to my house just of what I said. Uh, <laughs> we heard later on that it is a good idea, <laughs> or not later, we heard earlier, later, um, that it is a good idea that you should have a roof over your house. <laughs> and I also do agree with that, <laughs> uh, that it should be watertight. And I know... I know I once uh, or twice made fun of uh, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, the great, wonderful, marvelous architect who builds houses over rivers and who designs beautiful-looking roofs. Unfortunately, they are not watertight. So to me, uh, that is bad engineering, bad uh, uh, architecture. I'm an engineer. When somebody calls me, and in the old days people did, now that I'm retired, I don't have to worry about that anymore. I said, Peter, we need this and this and this and this gadget. Uh, I want it to cost $10, and I want it to be less than one pound uh, heavy, and I want to have it next weekend, and I don't want to pay more than $100 for it. And I said, I know what you want to do. But uh, I can handle the project. The only there are several problems. I can't do it next week. It's not going to cost you ten dollars or a hundred dollars, and um, it's not going to weigh one pound. Uh, but it can be done. But on the other hand, I like to have a client who tells me what he wants, and I tell him what I can give him. And I think an architect ought to be able to do that too, and should be doing it. And um, uh, with uh, a, a time, I think we will learn how to handle uh, uh, those situations. Uh, we uh, uh, jumped into new technology, unproven technology, and uh, we found out that uh, if misapplied, uh, uh, things don't go too well. And uh, we know that, you know, bad insulation or insulation at the wrong place at the wrong time, it's not good, and all of that. And uh, vapor barriers at the wrong place, also not good at that. Anyway, I shut up, and uh, maybe somebody else has more comments on the subject. Well, let's, let's go back to the interview here, dear, and let's listen to the second half here, and then we'll uh, sure. finish up with the roundup. Thanks, dear. Sure. Always a pleasure famous projects that you've uh, worked <laughs> on here. Um, sure. We had a text question about some work you've done at the, the Guggenheim Museum, and I'm not really familiar with the structure and how it's built and all that. Could you give us a little idea of uh, what you've done there? Yeah, this was, um, it's Frank Lloyd Wright building. It's one of the first buildings, and it may be the first, to use gunite uh, as a structural element. Gunite, prior to that, had been used for swimming pools, and crazy Frank Lloyd Wright goes and uses it for a, a major building. Um, 
Uh, and because it's spray applied, it, it leaves sort of cavities behind the behind the uh, the structural steel. And so the, the the concrete, which is only five inches thick for as high as twenty some feet, um, has a honeycomb network of voids in it. Um, this didn't seem to be too important to people until one. Uh, the, well, the building was fully under a roof, so no rainwater got on it. And on one morning in in one of the first winters, the building leaked. It just started crying, and uh, water was pouring out of this building that is totally under a different roof. Um, and so, like a good, and that that was inconsistent with what I had said in my book about uh, about basically water goes toward the smallest pores. It doesn't just pour out of hygroscopic, but it was. The, and so I did what a, a good uh, consultant does. I chose that my theory was more important than my observation and, until year two <laughs> when the same thing happened. The building, it, it looked like, it, I mean, it, uh, you know, Concrete doesn't have a urinary system, but this one did. <laughs> um, uh, and and what it was was basically the humid, humidified, pressurized air at the interior was filling this network of voids, uh, such that frost and ice would form. Quantities of water would of ice would form, and then when the weather turned warm, it would pour out and pour out of the uh, the voids. Hadn't seen it before, but it was uh, it was quite a thing. Wow! And what's the solution to that? Is there a solution? Well, the solution that I proposed uh, was an air barrier for a compact. Because there's no cavity in the building, and I said we need an air barrier. People thought I was crazy, and they said, "No, we don't do air barriers in this business." I said, "Very well then, uh, I'd like to specify the adhesive for the interior insulation, which they let me have a hand in doing, and I specified that it be continuous." So we kind of got a, an air barrier. <laughs> you. In a roundabout way, you got in a roundabout way. It's hard. <laughs> People don't want to do that kind of stuff, so you got to trick them. That's beautiful. Well, That's while we're on the subject of your work in famous or well-known buildings, are there any other, uh, you know, examples that you'd like to talk about? I, I offhand, uh, none kind of jump to mind. Okay, can, can I ask? Uh, a there question? are a million, but let me ask yeah. a quick one though, Bill. On the cover of your book. Um, yep. What building is that? And it looks oh, like the infamous rising damp here for the people that <laughs> yeah. can't see it. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the chateau at Pierrefonds, uh, Pierrefonds, uh, the sort of Pierre's well. Um, uh, and all these old castles in France had been destroyed by Richelieu because he was real Renaissance and he hated anything that was old. So he just had people go around, armies go around, tear these things up. And an architect named Viollet le Duc rebuilt them. Uh, he's, he's the one who stuck the salamander on it and uh, as an emblem of Francis I, who was the king at the time, and or at the time that it was originally built. Um, and he and Viollet le Duc was great. He said, "You really need gutters. Everything comes down to water management. You got to do it right." And in fact, this example on the cover breaks one of his rules, with his rule being, "Don't allow downspouts in the middle of the wall because they're going to get screwed up." Well, this one got screwed up, <laughs> uh, and it led to uh, it, it, there's a shape to the. To the water damage that's kind of a, a normal distribution curve that, that, that tells you, hey, I know where the water is coming from. It's coming exactly from a leak uh, in that. And then it was, it has uh, efflorescence and algae. It's just the prettiest little thing in color. So, um, it's a, it's, it was a great photograph. A lot of people have complimented me. On. I don't know. If, if you let us, maybe we could Post it up on the website so some sure. of the listeners can actually visualize what we're talking about here. Yes. Um, okay, great, Cliff. Well, what I'd like to—I think you, you made an excellent comment before about energy uh, management being everyone's responsibility, and you know, I, I think there's probably two sides to that question. And what the other side of the question is is, what is the green building movement doing wrong? In your opinion, 
Um, what they're doing right is uh, is getting everybody thinking about waste. I'm not sure they needed to do that. I mean, but it's it's good to have people of all ages not wasting so much stuff. But it's not as though we needed the green movement to be conscious or aware of that. Uh, we always are. That's the plus. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, uh, I'm. Um, I teach a class called sustainability theory, and I, I advise my students to um, uh, uh, to do the right thing and, uh, or to describe uh, certain activities that would be beneficial to all of us on the planet, blah, blah, uh, and not use the word sustainable or green. And it's quite a challenge. Um, suppose we dropped those words. I mean, the world doesn't care whether we use those words or not. Uh, there are good things to do and not so good things to do. And in a way, this concept of green, I think, points us toward doing soft, easy, light things rather than more difficult uh, and needed things. I've I, I I say that black is the new green. That if we're if we're really serious, we have to we have to stop with this light stuff, and we have to we have to really get serious. Really get um, serious. My colleague uh, Paul Francisco poses the Department of Homeland Sustainability with a color code of light green to dark green. <laughs> <laughs> well. While we're on energy and and sustainability to some degree, there's a, you know there's a movement with ASHRAE to uh, eventually get to net zero energy consumption buildings. Um, I think I know the answer because I think you mentioned it earlier. But what's the most important change we can make to buildings? Uh, whether they let's start with new buildings and then maybe we could go to older buildings to help get toward that goal. Um. Uh, when, sorry, this is so tough. My two recommendations are are to um, to reward low capacity in equipment. In other words, I think that any building that has the capacity to spend big amounts of energy uh, will. <laughs> okay. And, okay. and uh, it's not it's not doing anything good. We really need. Uh, if I had my way, I would say new buildings may not have equipment with capacities over and then define it depending on use and square footage and things. And then uh, the client says, "Yeah, but I'm going to freeze or I'm going to burn in the summer." Okay, now you better direct your architect or whoever to do the windows and the walls right, and you better adjust. To what you can afford to do. In other words, I, I think we need to be much more strict and just. Um, uh, and and to, the other thing we need to do. I'll be speaking to the Association of Petroleum Engineers in a month. Uh, is to say, let's prepare for the time when energy is not only expensive, but when it is scarce and intermittent, and when it's gone. It may be gone 100 years from now, and we're building new buildings. How long are they supposed to last? 100 years. Okay. They better do fine with when, when, the, the, when the juice is off. I mean, I have I, – I, I, my house is a net-zero energy house. I have two positions on the main electrical switch on and net-zero energy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we really have to um, – we have to adjust to um, – uh, to scarce energy, uh, not just expensive energy. There are no silver bullets then, huh? Right. Um, uh, right. All right. Well, it's, it's uh, close to roundup. Why don't we go to the roundup here? And I've got 25 other questions. I'm going to have to pick my best one, and uh, Cliff's going to have to do the same, and Dr. Dieter may have another comment. And if any listeners have any more questions out there, please feel free to text them in.
right, Bill. I, since I'm, I'm kind of in the uh, commander's seat here today, I'm going to take the first one, and then we're going to send it over to Cliff, and then we're going to bring Dr. Dieter back in, and if I get a chance, I'll get one more. I want you, if you could, to tell us a little bit about some of the research you're doing on combustion product concentrations in houses with unvented combustion appliances. What can you tell us about that? Uh, that unvented com combustion, or that houses with unvented combustion appliances uh, exceed WHO and Health Canada thresholds for NO2 uh, pretty regularly. But for all the other uh, combustion product contaminations, including CO, CO2, NO, uh, etc., they tend to be under uh, thresholds. Uh, so we didn't, we weren't asked to decide whether these are good or bad. So we didn't decide whether they're good or bad. We show what the resulting concentrations are. I see. And the thresholds that you compared them to were? Uh, it, we began out of ASHRAE Fundamentals Chapter 9. Um, uh, I could uh, pull them up if you no, want. No, no, that's but, fine. I just... But, uh, uh, I can give you the I, I, uh, the final report is public, and I can send that to you, and you can put it on the website. Great, thank you, Bill. Cliff. Okay, Bill. I, I, between you and Dr. Dieter, Dieter mentioned UV, and uh, you talked a lot about bulk water and, and condensation. Uh, I guess what my question is: Is building damage due to water freezing underestimated and not given enough attention? We did a study on pipe bursting due to freezing. I can address that. Okay. Um, and we solved the pipe bursting problem. Uh, try to be brief, everybody thinks that, that water turns to ice and becomes 8% bigger. That's not how pipe bursts occur. Uh, it's because of blockage and elevated fluid pressure downstream. So there are a whole lot of ways to allow piping water supply systems to turn to ice and back to water without damage to the system. Um, uh, so there are ways to greatly reduce the pipe bursting due to freezing problem. Okay. All right. Well, hope our restoration contractors might not want that information to get out. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> no, they will. Plumbers it. like it. Everybody likes less damage. They, they will. <laughs> Do you have uh, another minute, uh, Bill? Yeah, sure. I got another one I wanted to ask you about, and that is the sky radiation effects with solar reflective solar reflective roof surfaces. You've been doing some research on that, and I just want to know if uh, you can tell us a little bit about what you're finding out. Yeah, we were called uh, to Tucson, Arizona, because people opened up the uh, opened up some roofs following a truss rise. I won't get into that. And when they did, they opened them up in the winter time. They found that the fiberglass insulation directly on the underside of the roof was soaking wet. You could wring it out, um, and, and there hadn't been rain in in like five months. And it was a perfect build-up roof, bone white. And uh, so I, uh, there, so I was able to study. Uh, what the nighttime radiation effects are based on the emissivity and the absorptivity, that is the infrared and the solar spectrum, and bag on, but the underside of the roof never got up to the temperature of the outdoor air in the course of that winter. Hmm. It was really cold because of nighttime radiation. It was an exceptional case, um, uh, but um, it has led a lot of the people who do modeling to kind of stop using sole air temperature and look at infrared and solar radiation very differently. All right. The, other, the only other question, I've, I've got many more, but I always like to end with this, Bill. Is there anything you'd like to add or, or any, anything that we missed that uh, you think is important we get out to our listeners? Uh, no, just that you guys are doing a great job getting out to listeners. I mean, who who does such a such a thing? Uh, I've listened to some of the streamed programs that you've done, and you do a great job. Uh, I, I really want to compliment you. Well, thank you. We appreciate that. And uh, last but not least, uh, if if anybody wants to get a copy of your book, where do they go? Wiley.com. 
Wiley.com. All right. Or Amazon.com. Or Amazon.com. I think that's <laughs> where I ended up. But uh, I got myself a copy of it, and I highly recommend it. And I like the way you uh, go back and explain science for those of us that have <laughs> uh, short-term memory. Or actually, I don't know if that's short-term or long-term memory issues. But uh, it was great to get a little science primer at the beginning of the book and then go into some of the more detailed information that you have uh, following through. Okay, that was our interview with Bill Rose. Great job. By the way, the full name of that book is Water in Buildings, An Architect's Guide to Moisture and Mold. It's William B. Rose, and it's um, always very close by for me in my little research library area of my office here. Let's get Dr. Wow on, see if he has any final comments. We've gone past 1 o'clock. I didn't expect that, but uh, we'll quickly see if we have anything to add, and we'll wrap it up here. Dieter? Yeah, well, it's a little bit of a wrap-up. I, I, I like Bill. Bill is uh, from the old school where I am, uh, school where I am from. And uh, uh, there are a couple of things which apparently got lost through the years. It's called common sense. And uh, he makes uh, excellent points about it. And I said, look, you know, we got to do this and this and that. And if somebody else neglects to do that, let's call him an architect, well, then you run into problems. I think many of the problems we do have uh, are due to the fact that maybe houses are not constructed the way they were designed. Somebody else, uh, a worker, a, a, a crew, uh, says, ah, we always did it this way, hell with this, and... Uh, uh, after the drywall goes over it, nobody sees what's behind it anyway, so let's do it that way. Some of those things are engineered, should be engineered, and are well engineered. And we are learning more and more about it after we changed so many things. Architecture and building science hasn't, didn't change for a thousand years. But in the last 40 years or 30 years or thereabouts, it has changed significantly due to new building materials and insulation and, and, and all of those questions and problems that were encountered. And we didn't have much experience. We knew how to build cathedrals a thousand years ago. They are still standing very nicely without any problems whatsoever. But uh, the new stuff, uh, uh, it, it takes some thinking, and fortunately that will give a job to the new building science engineers, architects, whatever you want to call them, scientists. And that is good so. Yeah, like Bill does some research, and I said, hey, we did this and this and this. We thought it was good, but after we looked at it, it's garbage. You know, yeah. we can't have that. Really didn't get many so I, 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 I certainly encourage that, and um, I keep my eyes open. Uh, uh, I'm very liberal in that respect, and I look into every direction and have somebody tell me what to do and certainly what not to do uh, uh, to screw up uh, a nice house. Well, Dieter, as always, it's a pleasure having you. Glad to hear you're back safe and sound in uh, Pittsburgh after your trip to Belize. I'm sure that was nice. Hey, I was also, I just wanted to comment, it's always... In fact, yeah, in fact I saw a couple of buildings. They're only 2,000, yeah, some of them 2,500 years old. Wow. And they are still standing, most of it. Unfortunately, I mean, the only building materials they had were stones and limestone. And after they were excavated, uh, the rain and UV deteriorates the limestone. So even though uh, they, uh, uh, we know now what they looked like, uh, once you excavate, you open them up to the environment just like the roof on my house. Yep. So uh, we got to watch that. And you know, what do you want to do? Uh, leave it uncovered or leave it covered? and don't uncover it, then you know what's underneath there is still the original, or I want to look at it, then we have to uncover it. It's one of those you know, catch-22s. What the heck are we going to do? I certainly enjoyed my trip over there, and I like to look at architecture from two and 3,000 years ago. 
That is amazing, isn't it? I wonder how long it would have lasted, you know, if it hadn't been covered up. <clears throat> you think it would well, still probably be Probably less. Most likely less. You see it right now. You are seeing it, that it is deteriorating. After it is opened up again to rain, the rainy season starts at the end of May in uh, Guatemala and in uh, Belize. Uh, right now it's dry, and that's great because there are no mosquitoes. And uh, after the rains come and the, uh, the wet season, but that's again when all that, that's when limestone gets washed away from these wonderful, wonderful architectural wonders that they erected yeah, between 1,000 and 3,000 years ago. It's amazing. Absolutely. Well, Dieter, thanks for joining us. Uh, to all of our listeners, thanks for tuning in. I tell you what, I don't think I could have back, uh, picked a better show to listen to again. And I may just listen one more time here while I'm sitting around doing some reports tomorrow because Bill just comes up with some fascinating things, and he also got me to pull out his book, and I'll probably sit down and read through it again. If you get a chance, once again, it's Water in Buildings, an Architect's Guide to Moisture and Mold, Mr. William B. Rose, and look forward to seeing him here in uh, about a month and a half up at summer camp. Dieter, thanks for joining us. Uh, I want to thank Val, Roxy V, at the controls. Sure, thanks, Joe. We, we pulled it off, Val. Uh, got the new, newer advertisers in instead of the old ones. And uh, we'll be back next week. We've got Barney Burroughs, H.E. Barney Burroughs, the past president of ASHRAE and also the author of Managing Indoor Air Quality, one of the references we use for the indoor environmentalist training. Uh, look, Really, really looking forward to interviewing Barney. And, uh, of course, I want to thank our group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next week for the next episode. That would be May 17th at noon of IAQ Radio. Gotta get a move on before the sun. I hear my baby calling my name, and I know that she's the only one. And if I die in Raleigh, at least I will die free. So rock me, mama, like a wagon wheel. Rock me, mama, in a way you feel. Hey, mama, rock me. Oh, rock me. IAQ Radio Production.